Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Elena Mitum. She's Complexity Postdoctoral Fellow at Santa Fe Institute. Her research agenda approaches culture as an emergent effect of human everyday life. It aims to understand how individuals interact to produce, organize, and transmit cultural systems. So, Dr. Mitton, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to everyone. Thanks for having me. So, my first question would be, uh, because it seems that you come more from a cognitive science side of things, right? So, how does cognitive science apply to the study of human culture? So it does apply to the study of uh, human culture in general in several different ways. And one of the main ways is to transmit culture. You do need cognitive systems. Uh, like that's often something that is used as a definition for culture. It's, it's something that is passed through uh, different individuals and the way it's passed through individuals is through their cognitive systems. Um, so there's this like first main way, which is just um, basically you do need cognitive processes and you need cognition to be able to sustain cultural transmission. And then there's different debates on like how much and which kind of cognitive processes you need. Um, and the other side is more whenever you're transmitting things through cognitive processes, those cognitive processes have kind of marks and they're going to transform things in different ways. Um, so then cultural phenomena themselves are also submitted to this kind of influence from the cognitive processes down. Right. And in your work, do you focus just on human culture or culture in general? Because other animals, at least we know, also have some forms of culture, right? Um, so personally, I focus mostly on human culture. Uh, I've definitely had conversations with uh, non-human uh, culture specialists, uh, and I really like their work, but that's not something I work on directly myself. Uh, I have a bit of interest in how we sustain cultures through different species. So like, for instance, how we got horse riding traditions. So in that case, you do need another species to basically do their part of the cultural practice. Uh, but that's a bit of a side interest and not very core into what I do. Fair enough. Uh, and I know that you study cultural transmission in the lab, for example. So what can we learn from lab studies? And I mean, because they are, at least to some extent, uh, at, at, they have some limitations, right? Yeah. Um, so every time you're creating an artificial system, and that applies to experiments, but also to models, uh, it has both the good and bad side of your creating a system from scratch. So basically, you can, or almost from scratch experiments are definitely a bit more problematic in that extent. Um, but you have a very artificial system, so you have a lot more control on what you put in <clears throat> than like if you're running uh, or just observing naturally occurring data sets. And um, that's actually pretty good to create conditions that are all other things equals, which doesn't open very often in, in the wild, so to say. Um, so what you gain by using experiments is you can recreate some specific effect that when they happen in the real world might be harder to observe just because, for instance, they would interact with other things. <laughs> um, so um, I, I just find very different methods like very good to do different things epistemologically. 
um, and experiments, in my opinion, tend to be great for uh, kind of proof of concept work. So trying to show that you can recreate those specific type of effects uh, and that they're enough to produce results you would have predicted in the lab. Um, I worked a bit on like drumming patterns um, and that was a really cool way to approach it because what we wanted to show is that simply physical constraints tend to impact what kind of cultural practices you have. Um, and in that case, we just had very, um, <clears throat> we actually had the same apparatus for all conditions, but people had to do different movements. Uh, and we could show that having those kind of different movements to do leads to different rhythms that people were able to transmit. Um, so that's the kind of effect that is very nice and that you can create neatly in the lab that would be a lot harder to observe in real life. Um, Mm -hmm. But, uh, I mean, people in the field, people who study human culture, what are some of the challenges they put forth to lab studies when it comes to, for example, methodology and mm -hmm. theory? So another main challenge you have with lab experiments is they're going to be, by definition, so much shorter than anything that happens in real life. Um, so whenever you're studying, uh, for instance, melodies that have been transmitted for centuries, if not thousands of years in places, mm -hmm. you've had a lot of time where things have evolved very naturally. Mm -hmm. uh, when you're trying to do things like I've done in the lab, basically you are mimicking the passage of generation because you're using those cultural transmission experiments. So it's basically a telephone game and you're giving something to the first participant and then it's transmitted to another. Um, so you're mimicking a process of cultural transmission, but one thing is the transmission doesn't happen in the same condition as transmission happens uh, outside of the lab. So outside of the lab, a lot of the way we transmit culture is just interacting with other people. Um, it's not necessarily on purpose uh, transmitting something as faithfully as you can, as the experimenter tells you in the lab. Um, so there's this whole approach to why you are transmitting things and how you are transmitting things that is a bit different. Um, the other thing is, yeah, just, as I said, just like scale, because usually experiments uh, have a lot less participants and a lot less generations. There are also a lot less time per generation. Um, so that leads to kind of a close but very related problem, which is um, it's very hard to know which type of properties you can scale down in a sense, because uh, the question is really what are the kind of things you can transform in like a lab size <laughs> or not, and whether you're still keeping the same properties as they have when they evolve outside of the lab. Um, and that's very much why I was talking about it as like, they're good for proof of concepts. They're not necessarily good for having a very strong evidence that this is how things evolved. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, because I would imagine that, for example, in natural settings, uh, usually people interact with more people than in a lab setting. And that would probably change how information is transmitted because even Many times people contradict each other or they give different accounts of the same uh, information, for example, right? Yeah, exactly. So whenever you're studying things outside of the lab, uh, you have all those mechanisms like redundancy where you're getting the same information, but for different sources. Mm -hmm. And that's part of how it gets kind of consolidated. Um, there have been attempts to have things that are similar-ish in the lab, 
but they're still not on the same scale and they don't have the same embeddedness in other types of interaction. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to cultural transmission, what are the mechanisms that best explain it from what we know now? Um, well, part of it is it's going to depend who you're asking in the field. <laughs> I uh, so I'm going to assume you're, you're asking my opinion on it. Um, uh, yeah, for sure. So there's a like there's the bulk of cultural evolution that really focuses on the idea that we get a very Darwinian system. Uh, so we have high fidelity transmission or something that is high enough fidelity. Uh, and then we have selective processes. Um, the school I come from and very related to it, why I am in complexity science now and not in an evolutionary biology department, for instance. Um, I do think that Actually, there's many ways to get cultural phenomena, and for sure, having very faithful transmission is one. Um, like, I'm not gonna deny that it happens in some cases, but what I tend to go for is actually whenever you have processes that are transformative and um, likely to transform things in ways that are kind of always the same or leading towards the same uh, general distribution, then that's kind of enough to sustain culture. Uh, so that can be like transformations that are convergent, uh, but not necessarily convergent. You just need them to be non-random. Um, and I've also been working lately on kind of how little information you actually need to transmit if what you're transmitting is a very constrained system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because uh, I mean, I would imagine that, uh, and I wanted to ask you now about cultural stability specifically, mm -hmm. because I would imagine that because uh, the kinds of information people receive in their culture are not always exactly the same and they are not transmitted with high fidelity many times. So how does it happen that culture mm. sometimes stabilizes? Um, so if the, the point I've been trying to make is if you do have enough transformations that are uh, likely to be systematically biased and systematically mm -hmm. oriented. So yeah. non-random, that's basically what is going to create something that is stable at the large scale. Um, and that's part of the approach I like is assume, not actually not assuming that to have something that is stable at a large scale, you need something mm -hmm. that is stable and very faithful at the micro or individual interaction scale. Um, so to be fair, it's, I think it's still very much like in progress line of work. Um, and part of it is also uh, the question of cultural stability has been almost a bit underexplored in cultural evolution in the sense of if you're really thinking of cultural evolution as a very like Darwinian inherited kind of system, uh, you don't really need to explain it because basically what you see at your micro level is, oh, things are transmitted very faithfully. So of course that gives you a very staying at the larger scale. Um, what I've been interested in is like assuming, yeah, we have this thing at the larger scale, what are things that are not intuitive that could have happened at the micro scale and still result in those kind of things. Um, so yeah, I think my, my short answer is, um, cultural stability is just whenever you have something that is recurring with enough similarity to what it was, you know, at like kind of T minus one, uh, and like it perseveres through time, um, 
at a scale that allows you to identify it as a researcher because uh, there are things that can be very stable but you know for instance it's like a family tradition and you'll never observe it uh, because it's been very stable for centuries, but it's also like those 12 people in the middle of nowhere you've never met. Um, so those kind of like questions of like scale, uh, both in terms of time and how many people are involved. Um, and the way you get there, in my opinion, is just kind of any transformations that are not random and that are able to lead to that kind of things. Mm -hmm. uh, since you mentioned that example of uh, a family tradition that is only mm. passed in a particular family over generations, I mean, mm. when it comes to cultural stability, uh, where, I mean, what's the scale it applies on exactly? Because are we talking about uh, a majority of people in a particular society, for example, that have to have uh, mm. to share certain cultural elements or I mean how does it, how does it work exactly so it depends on what you're studying um, okay. like uh, all cultural practices have their own distributions um, and you don't necessarily need to have something that is a majority uh, belief or practice mm. for it to be a cultural and culturally stable one um, one example I actually quite like is anti-vaccination beliefs because they're actually much older and much more stable than people would think. Like it tends to be thought of as a pretty modern phenomena, but it has started like the minute we created, like we invented and figured yeah. out how to vaccinate people. Um, so those kind of things tend to be very stable uh, and, you know, depending which country and which place you're going to, they're not necessarily a majority belief. Uh, yeah. And for us to have cultural stability and cumulative culture, for example, as well, do we really need high fidelity copying? I, so my personal opinion is I don't think so. Um, and I think part of it is there's a bit of a logic problem uh, when you're talking about high fidelity copying for cumulative culture. Mm. Uh, and I'm going to explain why. Uh, so... I think cumulative culture means you're getting innovations uh, and those in innovations are cumulative and they're kind of an incremental process. Uh, the problem is, by definition, if you're having an innovation that is good, that was not high fidelity copying because you came up with something that was not the same thing as the one you had before. Um, and to be fair, I don't think many people would argue that we get cumulative culture by high fidelity copying alone. Um, so in a lot of cases is you need some kind of generative process on how you get those innovations, plus some form of retention of the good innovations, which is where usually people put high fidelity copying or high fidelity transmission. Um, and I'm just distinguishing the two because there are definitely types of processes that are still lead to transmitting things with high fidelity that are not necessarily copy per se, because uh, people tend to have finer grain uh, categories on which kind of processes are involved. Um, so, yeah, what we... Yeah, uh, sorry, what was the question again? Like, can you... <laughs> no, no I, problem. I feel like I might have gone on tangent there. Um, no, no problem at all. Uh, I was asking, so, about uh, cumulative culture, if we really need high-fidelity copying for it to occur. Um, 
short answer is no, but you will still need something that maintains uh, innovations in your population that are kind of like saves in a sense uh, in memory um, where we are at and uh, how good it is. But to be fair, a lot of cumulative culture tend to be related to artifacts and artifacts themselves are going to store part of this information. Um, so I would agree on you do need a system that is going to store and preserve information, but I would disagree on the fact that it's mostly high fidelity transmission, uh, or at least mostly high fidelity copying. Um, another part of it is a lot of things that people would put in cumulative culture. So, for instance, stone napping or uh, making tools and or using tools uh, are things that are very embodied. So it's like part of your storage system is literally people's bodies and it's very hard to transmit just by copying. Uh, like you do need to have pretty long learning processes where people figure out how to do it themselves. Mm -hmm. So uh, talking about cultural evolution, I mean, on the channel, I've already talked talked with several different cultural evolutionists about the sort of ways we can compare cultural evolution to biological or genetic evolution and there are similarities and differences people some people agree on some of them and other i mean people have different ideas about it but do you think that it makes sense to talk about selection in cultural evolution I guess it depends a bit at which scale you're like, what is exactly your meaning and your criteria for selection um, in okay. the sense of you can argue for selection as a cognitive process where people selectively choose who to copy, which is like a lot of the literature and our social learning strategies. Uh, or you can think of selection as models for large scale and how do you like model or compare or fit data uh, from cultural records. Uh, the first one I'm really not convinced by. The second one, uh, I think it has the virtue of being something that is testable and that you can put against other hypotheses. So I do value the fact that it's part of my field and that it's something that is very easy to like quantify and talk about and test. Um, whether it's something we have that strong evidence or in which context, I feel like it's a bit still of an open question, at least for me. Um, but yeah, it has like all the features that make it something we can know. <laughs> so um, let's get into a few examples of cultural phenomena that you study in your work. So I know that you've studied, for example, some maladaptive medical practices <laughs> like bloodletting and how they can thrive. So could you tell us about it? Sure. Um, so actually, that was my very first paper and very first impression <laughs> in research. Um, so what we did was we were interested in bloodletting um, as it is used as a cure around the world. Um, so the first thing we did was looking at the human relation area files, uh, which is this large database of ethnographic extract. Um, and it's the world culture part is ethnographic extract and it's really great if you want to have an overlook of what a cultural practice is around the world. So that's the first thing we did um, and after that we had kind of a sense of there are recurring features of how bloodletting is practiced um, 
And based on that, plus like what we know of the cocci literature on how placebo works, how we bind causality, um, and especially like how we tend to sometimes wrongly <laughs> bind causes and effects. Um, bloodletting is great because it sounds like it's something that would be I, really easy to memorize because it's a bit salient. Um, it's disgusting to some extent. Like most people don't really enjoy seeing the sight of blood. Um, and it's a, something that is like arousing in the sense of like just, you know, physiologically intense kind of thing. Um, and uh, bloodletting compared to other things that are disgusting as other types of cures can be localized on the body to the place where you're hurting. So we thought, oh, that has this like kind of interesting features than a lot of the other practices that are also maladaptive that seem to have been practiced in a lot of places have. Um, so yeah, we had this sense of like, that's probably kind of a mix of all those effects. Um, and then we created like tiny narratives that we kept having people pass on to see whether you can recreate those features when you miss them. Um, and whether uh, having those features basically help the narrative survive as well. Um, so it worked on both counts. Um, and I think actually that's a pretty good example for illustrating a general thing about uh, cultural practices and why I think some cultural so, well, more some things become cultural and have some kind of cultural success. It's like it's usually a combination of factors. It's not necessarily like one unified explanation. It's often um, you had all those factors that kind of ended up in this uh, perfect storm where suddenly you get to have something that has all those features that help um, and then things can pass on and are easy to memorize and like, yeah, just get in this kind of nice spot in the old way it could have been. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so another thing that you, you've studied and I think are studying still is how complexity evolves in graphic communication systems mm. like her, her, heraldry. Sorry, <laughs> this is a difficult role for word I for can't really pronounce it either. Heraldry <laughs> and uh, writing. So mm. how does that happened there? So actually heraldry and writing systems are pretty different uh, in that regard. Mm. So the general thing is um, when you have a more complex picture it's gonna get harder to learn and to memorize and uh, just to recognize as well. So you do get all those things where if you really want something to be easy you should use simpler pictures or simpler symbols. Uh, but you also get other pressures in the other sense, which are you also want things to be easy to distinguish and sometimes you need to have more details for that. Um, so you get this kind of trade-off and that trade-off applies to both. Um, the thing is for heraldry, you get a context where um, it's basically a good thing to also have things that tend to be a bit iconic. So things that represent things directly. Uh, and a fair amount of coats of arms are using um, things like lions or uh, eagles or those type of things. Uh, and to represent the world, you tend to need to have a lot more details. So what we see in heraldry is that actually the motifs that are most popular tend to become more frequent over time. So you get this pattern where actually complexity on average uh, increases over time. And that's really driven by using those more complex things uh, and more detailed pictures. And that's also very much facilitated once you're able to like print and stamp those things instead of having to like carve them every time. 
Um, what happens on the other side for writing systems is uh, we do know that tend to get simpler. So I was involved in this really cool case study we have on the Vice script in Liberia. Uh, and we have uh, time steps for 150 years uh, of it. So it's amazing that equality. And in that case, we can really see that characters on average get simpler over that time period. Um, and that's a kind of nice complement to another study I run um, in which uh, what we observed is actually uh, one of the main driver of how complex characters tend to be is actually uh, what type of phonetic information it encodes. Um, and in that study, we also had a kind of similar sub-study, which was looking at uh, writing systems that were pretty recent and comparing them to like similar uh, scripts but that would have aged naturally in a sense, or like would have come from like lineages of writing. Um, and we didn't find much evidence that they would have been uh, more complicated. So if you take all of those pieces together, uh, it's a bit of a detective story, but it seems to indicate that uh, writing systems tend to simplify, but if they do so, they do so in like their first century or so of life. Um, they tend to do that pretty quickly. So that also means that whenever you're running large scale studies that have only one um, data point in terms of timeline, um, you tend to not see much of those kind of patterns. Mm -hmm. But uh, do, for example, leather shapes have anything to do with uh, the phonetics associated with them or not, not at all? Um, so, well, <laughs> there, there are two sides to this question. So in terms okay. of complexity per se, um, the study we run has pretty good results that are kind of, in a sense, how big is the phonetic unit you're encoding? So whether it's mm -hmm. subsyllabic, like in alphabets, syllabic or larger, mm -hmm. um, and everything in between, tends to be a really good predictor of or how complex the uh, characters themselves are. Um, and there's another side which, to be fair, I've not studied myself, which is about whether character shapes themselves tend to mimic uh, or have associations with different type of sounds, because there's this wall and like bubakiki type of effects where uh, they tend to have natural-ish, uh, whatever that means, uh, associations between different types of shapes and sounds. Um, but that I have not studied directly, so I, I wouldn't be able to say much. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. So uh, earlier we talked about cultural transmission, and I would like to ask you a further question about that. Mm -hmm. So how do we go from small-scale interactions to large-scale cultural productions? I mean, how do things scale up, and how can we study that? Um, so that's actually a good and a big question. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I, I mean, I, so are you thinking about it just in the, in terms of like for one cultural practice or in general for like societies and all those? Uh, I mean, if you can answer both, that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> um, so from small scale to large scale for just cultural practices, it's really kind of explaining how they got transmitted um, and, you know, how frequently you got those type of episodes where, uh, yeah, things just 
got transmitted over and over again and that kind of accumulates and if you get enough of those events um, and those events have you know characteristics that can lead to large-scale cultural practices so either as I think not random transformation or like faithful enough transmission is just gonna show at larger scale uh, I think that's like the main logic for cultural practices and it's not it's not too difficult in a sense compared to the second question <laughs> that was in it uh, which is when you're talking about um, more like social uh, or cultural systems more than just practices uh, so if you're thinking about like societies or institutions they tend to face different problems at larger scales than they do at small scales uh, and part of it is there are things like consensus that are that get much harder to obtain um, it also means usually that the common ground between people that are part of the same cultural system tend to decrease with the size of the system so you do get those type of effects that definitely make it harder um, and I mean, there are there are a lot of different theories on how we get complex societies. Uh, I have not directly uh, worked on any of them per se. Um, so uh, I, I don't really have, you know, a horse in that race <laughs> in a sense. Uh, my two cents would be the best way to understand how we get to more complex um, type of societies or cultural institution tend to be by understanding why they were created. So like usually institutions are solutions to problems that already occurred. Um, what were the challenges they were facing? So like what are kind of the deficits um, or the things that make them hard to scale up? Um, and basically looking at what was the solution for, like what were the ways culture basically allowed to go over whatever was that problem? Uh, so that's more how I would tend to go about it uh, and I've been starting to think about that for different things that are so much in progress like they're they're far too half-baked for me to talk much about them but um, yeah. yeah and I think ultimately the motion we're gonna get for those are the ones that you know kind of go through uh, Merton's boat so this idea that like if you have something at a macro scale you need to get back to the micro understand what happens at the micro and that explains better your outcomes at the macro again um, so something around those lines <laughs> <laughs> yeah but, but I mean do you think that uh, probably to if someday we have a complete understanding of how culture works at both a small and a large scale that it would be I mean that understanding would involve some sort of feedback I mean from the larger to the smaller scale and part oh yeah yeah no, that's absolutely going to be some kind of feedback loop um, and to be fair there's also this interesting thing um, and I think that's the thing that happens in different fields of science not necessarily just for culture where sometimes it's easier to predict things at large scale and kind of just stick with whatever happens at large scale. Uh, and it's yeah. actually like the small little scales that are really hard to predict and they're linked to larger scales. So yeah, part of it is just trying to think about which scale things are occurring at and what are the links between scales. Um, and that's already helping you figure out what are easier or harder questions and what is more or less predictable as well. Mm -hmm. 
So another topic, what is tacit knowledge? Um, so tacit knowledge, uh, it has a long history. The, I think most useful definition of it is it's just uh, knowledge that is really hard to express in words. So it's knowledge that you cannot really make explicit per se. Um, so it keeps this format where it's, uh, yeah, kind of not exactly hidden, um, but it's things you know, but you cannot say. Like that was Polanyi's definition. Um, and I think that actually encompasses a lot of very different things. Uh, so that goes from, uh, let's say, how to hold a pen. Uh, like if I ask you to hold a pen, you'll be able to do it very easily. Uh, but if you have to describe it to me, that's going to be a harder task, for instance. Yeah. I think. <laughs> yeah, um, I also think so. <laughs> I think so, yeah. Um, so um, it's in that sense, like much easier to do the thing or uh, than it is to demonstrate it or explain it. Um, and it also involves things that go up to like how to navigate organizations, for instance. So knowing who you're supposed to talk to when you have what kind of problem. Um, so it tends to encompass a very large array of things um, and it has been studied in very different contexts. So there's a whole bunch of things underneath, uh, but they all share this general thing that um, kind of it's easier done than said or explained. <laughs> yeah, and so how is it transmitted then since I would imagine many times it it's not easy or it can't even get transmitted via language. Yeah, so that's the paper we actually just got out very recently with Simon Didio. Um, so we were interested in it because it's this really hard case for cultural transmission uh, because it's mostly stored in like people's bodies and minds. Um, and it also has this feature that imitation is also not a great explanation for it because in a lot of cases you already need to have a fair amount of tacit knowledge to know what you're even supposed to imitate uh, or like what you're supposed to pay attention to in what you're seeing. Uh, so it got into this, that's a really tricky cool case. And what we were thinking is a lot of those cases and especially for like embodied things, so like sports or crafts, um, they come with a lot of physical constraints and constraints in general. Um, so a lot of it are just like body organization. Uh, there are only a limited number of movements that are possible from the human body. And usually if you're having part of your body in one direction, like it has, it basically kind of propagates down to other parts of your body and in what's doable or what's easy to do. So we wanted to capture that idea and we were thinking if things are that constrained actually maybe we can go by with transmitted a lot less things uh, and that's really the core of the paper we wrote so in our paper um, you have teachers and they have their own constraints and they have their own networks of constraints that basically that's just a way to encode what they're doing um, that's a fancy way to put a cultural practice um, in math uh, basically <laughs> Um, and then you have a learner and the learner has um, also a network. So they have the same kind of criteria in what the network is supposed to look like. And basically what defines a practice is whether each node on the network is a zero or one. Um, and 
what we did is then the way a teacher intervenes tend to be by just giving the values of some of the nodes to the learner. Um, so if you're thinking of a more like concrete example, that would be, for instance, when your trainer like pushes your back or like tells you to have your back straight. That's like fixing your kind of back value in your network at this value. Um, and the idea is then you actually need to transmit a really little amount of information. So like in our model and for the sizes of network we tried, it's right like 10, 15% to get a lot of the uh, learners that would have almost perfect copies. Mm -hmm. Do you think that studying tacit knowledge and perhaps other forms of non-verbal transmission of cultural information, let's say, could put into perspective the role and importance of language in human culture? Because, I mean, as humans, I mean, it's mm -hmm. normal for us to do so, I guess, but we tend to put a lot of emphasis on uh, information that, that can be verbally communicated, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, so I think it does in two ways. And one is what we use language for and whenever we're using language to actually, in a sense, just like move or fix a part of someone else's body, <laughs> um, which is kind of probably not the use of language most people have in mind uh, when they yeah. think about language. Um, the other thing is also it has this flexibility in terms of models for being used for cases where people don't have language or like uh, individuals. So it has this nice feature where it could be used for animal cultures probably quite easily as well. Um, and, you know, the more general thing behind it is also you do not need to be good at transmitting information as much, actually. Um, and it opens a lot, lot of questions on also how do you select information um, to get transmission uh, like as good as you can get. Um, so yeah, it, it like has a lot of potential for different types of applications after that, uh, and I'm pretty excited about it. Um, but that is fair. Like one point about it is also it. It doesn't necessarily say that we don't need language much. Um, it just says like we don't always need language, and mm -hmm. probably tacit knowledge is not the place where we need language the most. <laughs> um, yeah. And do you expect to apply, uh, I mean, the study of tacit knowledge to particular behaviors, for example? Um, that's very much up in the air and to be decided at the moment. <laughs> uh, no, but I, I definitely do hope to be able to do more empirical work on it. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, just before we finish, would you like to tell us what kinds of topics you're or working on at the moment and the kinds of things you possibly are thinking about exploring in the future? So definitely which kind of applications we can do of this model on tacit knowledge has been a big thing on my mind lately. Um, and part of it is going to be on how do we get that to like experiments or large scale data sets. Um, another side, and that's really like just interest, I don't know how much is going to come out of it, has been um, how do we distribute cognitive processes in technological systems. Um, and the last kind of angle has been also how did we 
get to have globalized economic exchanges, uh, so kind of like large-scale trade systems. Uh, so yeah, that's kind of like the main things I've been thinking about lately. <laughs> okay, and uh, where can people find your work on the internet? So hopefully I should have a website up soon, but uh, that has not yet happened. Um, otherwise, my Google Scholar page is usually a good entry. <laughs> Um, and although, yeah, and same like um, my web page on SFI's website. Mm -hmm. uh, no social media. <laughs> oh, um, gosh, yeah, I almost forgot. Yeah, I'm also on Twitter. Um, not super regularly, but usually I, I update whenever I have like new publications out on Twitter. Okay, great. So I will be leaving links to that in the description box of this interview. Thanks. And Dr. Mitong, thank you so much again for taking the time to come on the show. And it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Okay, let me just... It was fun. Hi, guys. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. If you like what I'm doing and to keep the channel sustainable, please consider supporting me on Patreon or PayPal. All of the links are in the description box of this interview. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check the website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke and Blanchett, Perga Larson, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunder, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Wittingberg, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollis, Henry Kalenia, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Ruth Gervoz, Wo Weingard, Rebecca Neuberger, Goldstein, Dan Demetri, Robert Windegger, Rui Narcio, Arthur Coe, Zuc, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, Jorge Spinha, Phil Kavanagh, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernadini, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Cusson, Ivan Bodrin, Kuala Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrand, Aslan Bullet, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W. John Weira, Tom Hamel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Dajda Araujo, Romain Roach, Dermitri Gregoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rosmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavlos Tazevsky, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, John Linares, Lida Cosmides, Saima Afzal, Adrian Gage, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, John Barbosa, Jules Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortez, Ursula Litzke, Dennis Cook, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy, Todd Shackelford, Sunny Smith and John Wisman. My producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafiniak, Luis Caetan, Tom Wagner, Dan Curtis Dixon, John Linares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Gidi, Sardus Francis, Thomas Trumbull, and Nun Welder, and my executive producers, Michel Rugieski, Rosie, James Pratt, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Codriano, and Bogdan Canivets. Thank you for all.